Okay, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. We are back in 1 Peter. We're looking today at, I've been considering the, the three major areas of First Peter, and the first area being salvation, having God's people established in the, un, their understanding of their own salvation and what God's salvation actually is. And uh, before they can even do anything, before we can do, really do anything, we have to understand salvation. Uh, and then, of course, that leads into submission, uh, and then, of course, that leads into understanding suffering. Now, because of the, the great salvation that has been freely bestowed upon us by God, we actually have become privileged citizens of another kingdom. So then... As aliens and strangers on earth, we are now given responsibilities concerning how we are to conduct our lives while living for the Lord on this earth. So, in other words, conversion to Christ made a difference in the way we are to live. It makes a difference in the way we ought to live. So this book of 1 Peter is providing a very rich, it's, it's becoming a very rich theological book, which has its purpose, in its purpose, the deliberate intention to encourage every listening, following, and learning believer to press on in this Christian race that we have been called to, even in the midst of suffering and trials. So that means that a growing knowledge of God should increase, and once it, our knowledge increases, our faith should increase and cause us to hear and see what God is doing and ultimately to understand where God's grace actually brings us. Yes, if we take our eyes off the goal and we start looking back, we will not finish the race. The Bible tells us that those who put their hand to the plow and look back are not worthy for the kingdom of God. But if we keep our eyes on the finish line and continue to grow in our understanding of what awaits us at the finish line, well, you will conclude that there is nothing better there's nothing better that can be offered to you or I sufficient to replace what God has given you and I in Christ Jesus. There's nothing better. So you see, probably that's where the problem lies. We don't think enough about the heavenly realities and how privileged and blessed we are in Christ Jesus. We are often distracted by the temporal. We're overloaded in our day by the information dump. We have more information thrown at us in a day than most uh, 
several generations back didn't have in a year. And so that is something we have to deal with. But that information does affect us if we let it consume our time, if we let it fill our minds with worthless things, if it should raise our anxiety level to things that we can't do anything about anyway and crowds out any time that we have to think about eternal things and spiritual things and the blessings and privileges we have in Christ, then we have to do something about it. We have to make sure that we handle that information correctly. Or we limit ourselves about how much information we actually take in. It's like someday putting your mouth on a fire hose as far as information. It's, it's out there everywhere all the time. So I would like really all of you this morning to ponder what a difference Christ makes. Because what God offers us in Christ Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished is immeasurably superior to anything else that this world could possibly offer us. So here in our passage, we see our response, actually the needed response, the response that we should have to our blessed relationship with God through Christ Jesus. We are God's children, and we are given, actually in our text, four exhortations on how to live. How to live the remaining time that we have left after conversion in the society that we find ourselves. No matter what generation or what time we, we uh, are born into, this passage of Scripture is applicable to us. This morning, of course, I'll only deal with the first two, and then we'll pick up the others uh, in later messages. But the first exhortation that we actually have in this, the title of the last one was the hope of salvation. This is the holiness of salvation, is that Christians are first exhorted to have a fixed hope. Now, if you notice in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse number 13, it says this. It says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. And here it is. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here we are given several images in, our, in this passage that helps us understand that the actual exhortation. And the first image is the image of, of a girdle. Now, we would call it today a belt. And the image here is really wrapped around what it says here. It says to prepare your minds for action. That word prepare is also used in other translations to mean to gird your mind, uh, and, of course, that is a good way of explaining it, too. So, in, in other words, in, the Bible, in Bible times, people wore flowing garments down to their ankles. Still worn, of course, in many parts of the Middle East today. If you go there, you'll, you'll notice that. The men are wearing these long garments that go right down to the ground, and so, so are the women. Um, and when they traveled and when they worked, they would bind up the, or gather up their flowing robes 
into their girdle or their belt. They would roll it up into their belts. For what reason? So they could either work or they have to run or move fast. They did this so they would not be hindered or slowed down by tripping over the extra flowing material. For example, when people in the Old Testament had to hurry out of Egypt, the land of bondage, this scripture records really for us what actually took place with them. Matter of fact, it uses the same kind of language. It says, now you shall eat in this manner with your loins girded, your your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. In other words, they had to move quickly. So they, they rolled up their garment uh, the extra material, and they put it in their belt so they can get out of there. And if you notice the language there in that passage is about moving out quickly. And that's, of course, what they did when they moved out of Egypt. So to gird the mind, to gird the loins, or in our passage it says to prepare your minds. To gird up the mind means that you don't move through life with loose thoughts that are easily moved by impulses and passions drifting this way and that way as occasions dictate. Instead, a girded mind means the mind is made up. And it really, a mind that can decide things, a, a, a mind that is not wavering in decisions, a mind that knows where they're going, It has a direction about life. A mind that is ready to work and move through this world with a purpose and with a goal. That's the Christian mind. The Lord doesn't bypass the mind. He actually transformed the mind. And so that mind has to be ready. Of course, it goes on in our passage to give another image. And that is the image, secondly, of the Christian exhort to have a fixed hope, the image of a drunken person. It says in verse number 13, keep sober in spirit. Now, a drunken person is not a person who is in control of themselves. Their bodies, they're not in control of their bodies or their minds. They are instead given over to an outside intoxicating influence that controls them, clouding and distracting their minds so that they are unable to maintain clear thinking. When a person is under the influence of an intoxicating substance, their manner will be unnatural and erratic because they have allowed themselves to be controlled by something other than a sober and a sound mind. In other words, the intoxication takes over the person changes their character, changes their behavior, changes their demeanor in many ways. So being under the influence, a person has has removed his words and actions from his own power. But for a believer, a believer is to be sober. They're, They're to keep sober in spirit, which means to be self controlled clear-minded, able to see things in perspective, 
It includes not being infatuated with this world or intoxicated with the forms and structures of this world. According to 1 Peter, it's going to, become, it's going to come in, in, in other words, handy when we begin to grow in the Lord. And the way it, it becomes handy, just take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 7. Actually, spiritual sobriety will be important in two specific areas or for two specific purposes. And the first one, if you notice in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be sound of sound judgment and sober and sober spirit for the purpose of what? Prayer, right? So to pray properly, we have to have a clear mind, a mind that is being transformed by God, a mind that is being filled with Scripture so we can pray properly. If we don't have that, usually we pray things that are selfish and are self-centered and have to do with our passions and our desires instead of God's desires. And so God is transforming our minds so we will be able to be sober in our prayer knowing what we're praying for, knowing what we're involved with in our prayers, engaging in prayer, knowing that it is very important to be praying about things in our life. There's a second purpose also, and if you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse number 8, here is the second purpose. It says, be of sober spirit, 1 Peter 5, 8, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So you see also that the Christian Christians are not only aliens on this earth, but they are also invading the enemy's territory. Remember, God has moved us from the kingdom of darkness, which is Satan's kingdom, to the kingdom of light. All right, So therefore, Satan is not happy about that. Uh, so therefore we must be sober, for what reason? For the purpose of resisting the enemy. And that's very, very important for us, because really we are not called as believers to cast out demons or to exercise demons. We are called to resist demons. We cannot win over demonic powers. Where we win is in our strategy. We can defeat his strategy. Why? Because we know what it is. The worst thing that an enemy could ever allow his opponent to know is how he's going to get where he's going, right? And if I know what that is and the Bible tells us what that is, then God has given us the upper hand uh, because not only do we have the Spirit of God guiding us, the Word of God showing us who we are and what God has done, but also it tells us the character of the, of, of the enemy, it tells us who he, who he is and what he's up to. What is he up to? He prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The someone he wants to devour is you. He's after you. He's after me because we're in Christ now. So God says, listen, you need to have a sober mind. You need to have a balanced spirit that has sound judgment so you can not only pray, 
but you can stand up against the enemy's traps and deceptions, and specifically his lies. He, he's a deceiver, and he's a good one. He will deceive you. He can deceive you. But if you know the truth, very hard for him to deceive a believer who's maturing in Christ, and not only that, knowing how to resist him. See, if you resist him, he will flee from you, but he will be back. I guarantee that. Now, back to chapter 1 in verse number 13, he kind of concludes this passage of Scripture where he says, okay, after I've given you an image of a drunken person, meaning that, listen, you're to be sober and not drunken or influenced by anything other than God's Word and God's Spirit, and that you are to be a person who is ready to work, you have your loins girded, you have your mind prepared for living for Christ in this world as an alien, knowing that I am one, and that therefore suffering is going to be part of our lots as believers, different levels, as I mentioned before. But this last thing he says in verse number 13, it says we are to have, remember, the main point here is Christians are exhorted to have a fixed hope. Remember, this is not a wavering hope. It's not of, oh, I hope, I hope that God does this, and then I, the next day, I don't know if God's going to do that. You know, like that kind. No, this is a hope that's fixed. But it's, it's actually, I have to add a word to that. It's a future fixed hope. Notice that where it says in our passage in verse 13, it says, fix your hope in the middle of the passage completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, our hope is not a hope that just is limited to the present. Our hope should be a hope that is fixed on the coming of Christ while we're maturing and working for the Lord on this earth. We have to have this future hope. God says, this is going to take place. This is your uh, this is what's going to happen. I am coming back again, so our eyes have to be fixed upon him and the completion of his plan because the believer now has access to knowledge they didn't have access to before. They have access to understanding they didn't have access to before. They have access to wisdom found in God's word they didn't have access to before. And they have all that for what reason? So in order to fix their minds on the future with unwavering hope, the reason Christians can be sober, decisive, and have decisive minds is because they have a hope in Christ, a hope fixed on what Christ has done what he is doing now through his spirit, and what is he doing now through his spirit? He's sanctifying us, right? And then what he will ultimately complete. What will he ultimately complete? Our salvation. All right, remember, we were, we were saved, right? We're being saved, and ultimately we will be saved. Those are the three things the Bible uses to give us an understanding that this is a process that God is bringing us through. He started the process, we're in that process right now of maturing in Christ, and he will bring us to the end of the race. We will finish the race. We will make it to the finish line. Because ultimately, making it to the finish line is not all on you. It's God who's going to do it. 
But we don't sit on the sidelines and just watch everything happen. That's the point of sanctification. We agree with God and what God's doing, and we enter into it. All right, all these things, these exhortations are things that we are to actually do. It's your job to make sure that your mind is being sober. It's your job to make sure that you're no longer being intoxicated by the things you used to before, and not just drugs or alcohol, but just a mindset that's intoxicated by the worldly, worldly thoughts and worldly goals. And, uh, you know, all those things are temporal, they're temporary, and many times they're sinful. And so we can't live there anymore. So that brings me really to the second exhortation this morning, and that is the exhortation for Christians to live a holy life. Right? Now, you heard that word before, holy life, but I, don't really under, I really don't think as I talk to Christians that they understand what a holy life is or what they're to do to make sure they're holy. Well, Scripture explains that to us. And if you notice in verse number 14 of chapter 1, it says, it starts off like this, saying this. Real simple. In verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, verse 15, but like the Holy One called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Now, it starts off in verse number 14 saying, as obedient children. In the backdrop, in other words, of a holy life is the attitude of obedience. In other words, in Scripture, childhood and obedience go together. The parents are the authority, and children are to learn to obey that authority. So it always goes. The picture of a child is meaning that a child learns how to listen. They learn how to obey the voice of their parents. And when a child listens, things go pleasantly. When a child doesn't listen, things don't go so well, right? Either the parent loses it and allows the child who doesn't want to listen control everything, or the parent uses their power, as a parent, parents, you do have power, to control the child and bring them under control in a proper way. Of course, corporate, corporal discipline is taught in the book of Proverbs uh, that a child's stubborn, rebellious will is brought under control by the parent. That's their job. It's not their job to let them go on and say, oh, pass. Everything will be all right. It'll just a phase. No, rebellion is not a phase. Disobedience is not a phase. If you let your child go on in that particular attitude, it will become bigger and stronger as time goes on, and it will manifest itself in different ways. So we mustn't forget that one reason Jesus became a man was to be our representative. Jesus was our representative in obedience. We are saved by his obedient life also, not just by the cross. See, Jesus obeyed for us. Where Adam failed and disobeyed, 
when Adam and Eve were tempted to disobey the word of God, they did disobey and they failed the test. When Jesus, the man, was tempted to disobey the word of his father, he obeyed completely. In fact, he obeyed all the time, every time. That's what Jesus did. So this, this whole con, uh, again, again, another picture is that of an obedient child. That's what he's calling us. Scripture is calling us. Scripture is assuming that all who become believers are obedient. Now, why is that? Well, if you go up to verse number two of chapter one, let me just remind you again. It says that you were chosen in verse one, verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. See, in other words, we, when we save, one of the things that came with real salvation is a desire now to actually obey God. I want to do what God wants me to do. That was never there before, but it also assumes other things, which I'll, I'll mention in a minute. So, see, Adam, the first man, failed. The whole human race was plunged, plunged into sin and rebellion, but Christ, the last Adam, passed the test. And as the book of Romans tells us in chapter 5, it says, in verse number 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus, in other words, sets the example for us when it comes to obedience. Remember when Jesus was 13 years old, his parents were in Jerusalem uh, for the high holy days, and they're leaving Jerusalem. They assume Jesus was with another group of the family in the caravan heading back to where they lived up north uh, of, of Jerusalem. And they, when they got halfway there, they realized he wasn't with anybody, and then they went back to Jerusalem, found Jesus in the temple uh, teaching, and I'm actually talking with the, the elders of the temple, and, uh, and they were amazing him, and the parents says, you know, how come you, what are you doing? And he says, don't you know I must be in my father's house? And of course, Jesus, from that day forward, the Bible says, submitted to them, all right? So he gives us a picture of obedience, all, we find that all over the place, that he is our example. Uh, he's our example in obeying the Father. And Jesus, of course, primary concern on this earth was obedience. Like in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, that is obedience. And then, of course, right here in 1 Peter, we see in chapter 2, verse 21, it says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So even in suffering, who's going to be our example? Christ is going to be our example. So obedience comes with, it's the first thing that comes with sanctification. And, but remember, obedience is more than following a set of rules. Obedience actually is the expected response of a Christian to his Lord. This is a passage that comes to mind 
It says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, what is that person? It says, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And well, what's the, how do we know we're in him? We obey him. He's our Lord. He's our master. We obey him. So obedience is, is not merely following a bunch of do's and don'ts. That's not it in Scripture at all. Matter of fact, tear up your list of do's and don'ts. It's, not, it's actually going to hinder you, not profit you. It really involves following and loving Jesus Christ and seeking after the things above, seeking after the heart of God. So as obedient children, really that, that, that phrase describes the content and character of God's alien children. This is, this, is, this is who our character is supposed to be. Why is, why is our character so different now? Because Christ saved us, because he's given us his spirit, but also because of where he's taken us. We're no longer children of disobedience, like Ephesians 2.2 says. We're no longer under the wrath of God, like Ephesians 2.3 says. We are no longer children of darkness. In fact, look over the page at chapter 2, verse number 9 of First Peter. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, look what it says, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you're no longer children of darkness. darkness. I can also say it like this, the lights have been turned on spiritually. We're also no longer children of the curse, Second Peter 2.14. Don't turn there. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. This is a, mentioning the false teachers in Second Peter. Having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. We're no longer cursed children. We are blessed children. So being obedient to Christ assumes certain givens. Pretty simple ones, actually. You have to listen to and receive the word of truth given in the gospel of salvation. Secondly, you have to understand what the Lord requires of you from the word of God. You can't obey something if you don't know what it is that you need to obey. And then you are willing to do what the Lord says in order here it is, to live a holy life, right? That means you need to know what it is and what it means to live a holy life. All right, now, well, let's look at the first thing it means. In our text, we're exhorted to live a holy life, and here's the first thing, and let's look at it in verse number 14. What we are warned not to do or be in our new spiritual natures. Now, look back at verse 14 of chapter 1. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. 
Now, that says something very pointed to us. Obedience leads to a responsibility. The term used here for conformed really is the word that means to mold after, to be guided by. In other words, don't let your former lusts continue to fashion you. Your former passions that you lived by no longer adopt the old former design of your life to guide you anymore. Why is that? Well, if you look at the end of verse number 14, because you were ignorant before. Now, what's ignorance? Ignorance means I didn't know what I was doing. I just lived according to what I thought, right? What the world told me, what I learned here and there, and usually I was guided by what I want to do. That's a passion, right? That, that's a desire. Whatever I wanted to do, that's what I did. That's what you did, right? But that leads us to trouble. And it doesn't lead us toward God. It leads us away from God. It leads us to a, really a selfish lifestyle. See, we used to be ignorant of who God is, of what he has done, of what he requires. But no longer, no longer, you can no longer claim ignorance as an excuse when you're a believer. You got that? You can no longer claim ignorance as an excuse. I didn't know. I didn't know. Maybe the first time, but it cannot be a habit. And by the way, even in secular life, ignorance is not accepted as an excuse for bad behavior. Christians no longer are to be ignorant of what is worldly, what is sinful, what is carnal behavior. You can't claim that anymore. I didn't know. I wasn't informed. Right? If somebody's not informed by the word of God, I believe the spirit of God's going to get them informed. They're going to start opening up their Bible. They're going to start reading it. They're going to start listening to preaching that actually explains the Bible so they could know what they need to do so they know they no longer remain ignorant in their life. I'm reminded of a similar, actually similar language the author of Hebrews taught the people when he penned these words. Here's the words. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily tangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So Hebrews chapter 12 mentions two things. It mentions weights that impede performance and actual sins that the sins that easily entangle us from running the race or from having a sober mind or being ready to move quickly to do the work of God. See, there are things that can hinder us, and they are not necessarily sin. So there are two general areas in this passage of Scripture which must we must pay close attention to and then be deliberate at, at being responsible to lay those things aside. And the first one in verse, this, verse 12, it says, it's, it's hindrances. Let us 
also lay aside every encumbrance. Encumbrance is a weight. It's, it's really the word that means a bulk, mass, a burden. And of course, it's put in the context of a runner running a race. Now, a runner who's running a race to want to win doesn't put ankle weights on. He doesn't put a flak jacket on that has metal plates in it. What, what, what does he do? An, an athlete would strip for action both by the removal of extra body weight and then, of course, through rigorous training and then by removal of, of ultimately as much clothing as possible with the lightest clothing so they can run the fastest they can. So nothing could hold them back. So what must you do? What must I do? We must strip off everything that impedes performance as a believer. Whatever's holding you back from maturing in Christ, from going forward, if you are going to travel far, if you've been traveling at all, you learn to travel light. The worst thing about traveling is taking these big pieces of luggage and, you know, the hassle of getting them on a plane today. I don't know. It seems like the planes are getting smaller compartments for luggage. <laughs> I don't I think they're doing that because uh, I bought luggage many years ago that fit in the compartment. It no longer fits. So I'm, I'm wondering, what's going on here? Are they doing something to those planes, Adam? Are they doing something to those planes? But nonetheless, the best thing to do when you're traveling a lot is travel light right? So you can move quickly. So you're not going to be burdened back by all this luggage that you're dragging around with you. And usually what happens is if you take a lot of luggage, you don't come back with a lot. You end up giving it away, doing it, dumping it, whatever it is, if it's, if it's not that valuable. And uh, so, be, so in other words, uh, before you were a Christian, these things that you did, they didn't really hinder you. But now they, you're in the race, the Christian race, they must be discarded. A hindrance is something otherwise could be good, but it's holding you back spiritually, so they must go. So things must be discarded, maybe things like this, maybe habits that you have that need to go. Uh, they need to be removed from your life. Maybe you were a person who lived for leisurely fun. Maybe it's just, you know, spending too much time on Facebook, blogging, Internet, social media. That takes up a, a large amount of time, doesn't it? And it's not necessarily sinful, but it's holding you back. It's causing you to waste time, right? So you can spend two hours on the computer or on the Internet and not even cracked open your Bible or, or read through a passage or thought about something spiritual that day. That's, see, that's what the Bible's talking about. We have to change the way we live our life, uh, even in the areas that are not sinful. You know, some people, when I was growing up, everybody lived for Friday. Friday was the party night, right? And, you know, that's, that was the entertainment night. And so that's what we live for. That's what they live for. But you know what? A Christian can no longer live for those things anymore. They can't live for prosperity and gain anymore. They can't even live to desire worldly ease and desire the, to take the path of re, least resistance. Once you become a Christian, you're going to find out you're going to step on paths that you didn't 
ask for, but you're on, and they're tough pets because they have, you have to make tough, strong decisions, and sometimes, you're, remember, your no has to be no, your yes has to be yes as a believer. So even associations, past friendships, may have to be lightened up a lot because that person is a bad influence on your spiritual forward movement, and so therefore you can't spend as much time as you used to with them. And that could even include family members, friendships that you had, other people that, that just every time you get around them, you're going backwards instead of forward spiritually. See, you have to understand those things. Those things must go. That's the former way you used to decide things. That's your past passions and desires. So these are all weights that keep us back from running this race, from tucking the extra material under our belt so we don't trip and fall every couple of sanctifying steps. See, we must shed them as an athlete has his track suit and he takes it off when he gets on that starting mark to when that gun, he's, he's light as he can be because he wants to win that race. But if you notice in this passage, that's not all. It also says we have to lay aside the sins, which so easily tangles us. You know, this is very interesting here because it's, it's something that prevents us or retards our maturity in Christ if we keep on in not recognizing or dealing with the sin that is usually immediate in our... There's one particular sin or several particular sins that you must put off for this reason because they hamper and entangle you. These could be any sin particular to you that easily sets you back. You You have to ask yourself, What is the sin that easily entangles you? What is it? Is it anger? Is that your default sin? Anger about things not going the way you want, and so that's what you do. You go. You feel you justified to be angry in a situation, and that's where you go. Or maybe it's being judgmental. You just have to criticize everything you see. And if it's not your way, then it's no way. See, these are sins of, you could have sins of covetousness, always desiring something somebody else has, but you may never have. It could be envying, lusting for this and lusting for that, complaining, grumbling, slander, gossip, hypocrisy, saying you're going to do something and not living for the Lord, just outright lying, default sin of lying, pride, unthankfulness, being greedy in your heart, bitter, not willing to forgive when you know how Christ and what Christ forgiven you of. It could be Pornography, with the internet and all the ways that it, you can get to it and it can get to you, those are the kind of things you have to say, that, that, that cannot be in your life anymore. You understand that? 
that will destroy your life. There are certain sins that have a destructive nature to it, and that is, that is definitely one of it, because it leads, just like drugs lead to other things, pornography leads to other things also. There's entrance sins into bigger sins that are more entangling and crippling to you or I. And then what about the things that you are not doing that you should be doing that are sin? Now that you're a believer, you don't, when, you're, when you're not being prayerful, you're actually quenching God's spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if we read that last chapter, you'll find that. If you're not being thankful, and Christian, Christians are people that need to be thankful 24 hours a day. Because you know what? What you, what you and I have, we don't deserve any of it. Especially on the spiritual level that we don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve to look forward to the revelation of Jesus Christ and all that's going to bring that he promised us. We, we don't deserve. So every single day, sitting down to a simple meal, being thankful for that, knowing it doesn't come from ShopRite. It doesn't come because you worked hard and you were able to make money to go there and buy buy that food, it came from God's hand. Because all the Lord has to do is shut up, shut up the heavens, let the sun not shine, not bring anything into that area where food can grow. You're not, there's droughts over, around the world all the time. And many times those droughts are in areas where people are idolaters. They don't worship the true and living God. They worship their own idols, and their own idols cannot provide for them. So the gospel comes in, God comes in, we, they get the truth, and God opens the heavens again. Just being discerning. What about rejoicing? Not rejoicing is sinful as a believer. Not being forgiving. See, we, we need to actually put stuff off, and then we need to put on things. Put on righteousness. See, that's what we need to do. So whatever it is, it must be laid aside and left behind can no longer allow these things to characterize your mindset or your lifestyle. Now, let's face it. Left to ourselves, we all tend to suppress the God-given knowledge and the God-given wisdom that we have learned and run after our own evil imaginations that conform more to our liking than anything else. That's what we all do. But no longer. Can we do that? We can no longer claim, as I already said, ignorance. And don't think, Mr. Lenski said in his commentary, don't think you can remain among the children of obedience while still fashioning your conduct in line with the old habits and lusts that you used to have. Don't deceive yourself like that. Now, why are we to live a holy life? And I haven't gotten to that part yet. That's, but that's part of it. Part of living a holy life is uh, what I just mentioned there, that we are to not do some things. We are, not, we are warned not uh, to be or do these things in our new spiritual natures. Now, why ultimately are we to live a holy life, which I'll probably not go further than this this morning because we have the Lord's table. But I'm going to leave you with this. Why? Because we are in a new family. We're in a family in which our Heavenly Father 
our Heavenly Father's character guides how we are to responsibly live. See, God loves all that is pure and good and hates all that is evil and sinful. Is that true? Yes, that's true, right? So therefore, he is holy, and then what does he do? What is he going to call his kids to be? If God's holy, what is he going to call us to be? He's going to call his children, his obedient children, to be holy. And if we are obedient, an obedient child wants to conclude this. Father, if you want me to be holy, I want to be holy. What do I need to do to be holy? Well, I just told you the first thing you need to do. Don't do those things, right? Don't, don't live the way you used to. Don't go back to your former way of thinking, living, lifestyle, sins, passions, and desires. You've got to leave all that behind, and you have the ability by God's Spirit to actually do that. So holiness means you don't live according to your old manner of living. But secondly, holiness means this. It means we are commanded to be what we are commanded to be in our new spiritual natures. Look at verse 15 and 16, and I'll just read these. Uh, Read one other passage, and I'm going to close this morning because of the Lord's table, because we have no time. Look what it says in verse number 15. And 16, it says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Where? Also in all your what? Behavior. So where is your holiness going to be manifested? It's going to be manifested in your behavior. In other words, I can see if you're holy by your behavior. As you can see, a child who is disobedient. All right, if a child looks at you, you say, come over here, could you clean this up for me? No! Is that, oh, that's pretty clear, right? That's behavior, right? No means disobedience. So the thing is, that, in other words, God is looking for obedience that is manifested in your behavior. Right? That's where you're saying it. And can I see that? Can you see that? I can see that. Can I see that in myself? If I'm honest with myself, and I'm not looking at myself through rose-colored glasses, yes. I want to see in my own life whether my behavior is holy like the Father's character is holy. Right? Because if you're in God's family and God the Father is your God through Christ Jesus, then you will become holy. You realize that, right? And you want, you'll want to not buck against that, kick against it. You'll want to cooperate with it and say, Lord, whatever I need to change in my attitude, in my thinking, in my words, in what I'm pursuing secretly in my mind, I want, because I know you see that, I want to change those things. Give me the ability to lay them aside as things that are either holding me back in the race and are not necessarily sinful, but they're not profitable. And secondly, those sins that entangle me 
let me lay them aside so I can live for you. And then you can see in my behavior that I'm growing in holiness, right? And when you're growing in holiness, you're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ who also is holy. I think I'll stop right there and pick it up next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Again, the word of God exposes our heart. It cuts down deep into the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It lays our mind bare. And Lord, how could we ever think that we can hide something from you? We can't. And so I pray, Lord, as your children, that these passages of Scripture would become a reality in our life every day. So, Lord, we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are growing in holiness. First, Lord, by the way, things that we're not doing that we used to do, but also by the things that we now ought to do and be because now we're your children. So I pray, Lord, that our obedience would be obedience that is definitely obedience that understands what you require. And then secondly, Lord, that we are obedient and willing to do whatever it takes to live a holy life. And I pray, Lord, that holiness would come out of our behavior. And as we live that way, we know it honors you. And we know you're pleased because that is your plan. That is your goal. And I pray, Lord, as we live that way, that we'll, we'll know that we'll enjoy it and we'll love it because we know we please you. But we know there's also a power that comes in living a holy life. And I, I just pray, Lord, that all of us who are here today would take these principles and exhortations seriously. And I pray, Lord, we would see the results of them as we give ourselves wholly to you in serving you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I pray this this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this morning we have our Lord's table, so men who are serving...